Amen and amen. I'm starting a little mini-series today for a few weeks about God problems. How many of you ever have problems? God's got answers, okay? I don't have them, but God does, all right? We're going to open by looking at Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10. Look at it with me, if you will. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Lord, now bless the reading of your word and... I pray for your favor and anointing as we preach, as we apply your word to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, and the people said together, Amen. Question, how many of you have ever found yourself in a predicament? I don't know what in the world I'm going to do. I am in a predicament now. You ever been there? Some of you just started back to school and you saw your schedule and you did not want to get that teacher, but you got that teacher and you are in a predicament now. Some of you are working at a job and uh, it pays the bills, but Things are not looking very good for you right now. You've got some problems with the boss. You've got some problems with somebody else. And you've gotten yourself into a predicament and you don't know what to do now. Some of you may be in trouble with the law. Not going to go there today. But you could be in a predicament. All of us are in predicaments. It's sometime or another in our lives. And sometimes we do it to ourselves. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, I was visiting my cousin Larry out on the farm where he lived. He was also in the seventh grade. And he had a little motorcycle. Not a very big motorcycle, but he had a little motorcycle. And he asked me if I wanted to ride on the back with him driving. I said, sure. So we rode all over that little farm area down this field road and that field road, up this gravel road, down that road. And we had a really good time for about 30 minutes. Then Larry got off of his little motorcycle. He said, Kevin, do you want to drive? Hey, I'm a seventh grader. I got some adventure about me. Let's go for it. I said, sure. He wisely got off of that motorcycle as I got on. And he gave me two words of instruction. He said, first of all, you need to know the back brakes on this motorcycle do not work. So be very careful when you put on the front brakes, because if you put them on too hard, you could flip over and it won't feel very good. Okay, got that. The second piece of advice he gave me was this. Make sure you keep it in 
first year. I'd never driven a motorcycle before, nor since. And that was very good advice. So I got on this little motorcycle, and I started heading down the gravel road in front of their house. And I'm keeping it in first gear. It's going... And I started thinking, this motorcycle sounds like it's about to tear up. I better put it in second gear. So I put it in second gear. I'm flying down this little road. And then he's... I remember... When I was on the back, when he was driving, he did something he called speed shifting. He shifted from one gear to another without using the clutch. I thought, that sounds pretty cool. I'll do that as well. So I go from second gear to third gear. I'm flying down this road, this little motorcycle, for all it's worth. In third gear. And I realize I'm in a predicament. I don't know how to stop this thing. And the road that I'm on was only two, 300 yards long, maybe less than a quarter of a mile. And at the end of that road, it came into another gravel road. They formed a T. On the other side of this road here, there is a barbed wire fence. And I am headed toward that barbed wire fence for all that I'm worth. I don't know how to stop it. I don't want to throw my front brakes on and flip over. I don't know how to downshift or any of that kind of stuff. And so I just ride that motorcycle. I try to make it around the corner. But guess what? I didn't make it. I met the barbed wire fence and the barbed wire fence won. You ever find yourself in a predicament? Sometimes we do it to ourselves. I know I did. And sometimes other people put us in predicaments. Might be somebody in your family. It might be somebody that you work with. It might be somebody that you go to school with. And they make some bad choices. They make some bad decisions. And because of what they have done, they have put you into a predicament. And sometimes predicaments are just part of life. These physical bodies are not made to live forever. And you might get some news from your doctor that you don't want to hear. Maybe cancer or heart disease or some other issue. Maybe you have to have surgery and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Maybe it's a financial predicament and you really didn't do anything to lose your job. They were downsizing and you lost your job anyway. Sometimes predicaments are just a part of life. Sometimes you may feel like the guy who's driving down the highway, not paying much attention, minding his own business, and he ends up behind a pack of about 50 Hell's Angels. You know, the motorcycle gang? And while he's behind this motorcycle gang of Hell's Angels, the car horn, the car he's driving, gets stuck. Ah, for about 45 seconds behind that motorcycle gang. How many of you know he's in a predicament? Absolutely. Sometimes God himself may put you in a predicament. That's where we find the Israelites today. They're not happy about living as slaves in Egypt. 
And yes, they did complain about it, but at least they were alive. Now it looks like they're about to die. Here's this huge, powerful Egyptian army. They can see off in the distance. Horses, chariots, soldiers, the most powerful army in the entire known world. And they're about to attack. And we're all going to die. Were there not enough graves for us back in Egypt? They complained to Moses. And I don't know what Moses is thinking. He probably doesn't have time to think very much on the spot right there. But there may have been times when he was thinking, listen, people, I didn't want this gig to begin with. I was minding my own business when God called me. I had a semi-retirement job watching sheep out there in the desert for my father-in-law. Everything was chill. But God sent me down there because you kept whining and complaining and crying out to him that we need to get out of here. So God sent me. I didn't want to go. From a human perspective, it looks like the Israelite situation is totally out of control. What in the world are you doing, God? And here are the Israelites. Moses, what are you trying to do? Kill us? And here's Moses. God, I need you to do something now. And here's God. You're exactly where I want you to be. Go to Exodus chapter 14 and get some background, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly across Baal Zephon. If Moses knows the desert, like I think he knows the desert, he's got to know this is not the shortest, the best, nor the safest route to get where we need to go. Why are you doing this? God's about to explain. Go to verse 3. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land of confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Pharaoh thinks the Israelites are lost. Here they are wandering around in the desert. They don't know where they're going. This is a perfect time to attack. Pharaoh thinks the Israelites are lost, but this was God's plan all along. God continues in verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is using Israel's apparent loss of direction to entice Pharaoh to attack. Apparently, God didn't give Moses a lot of details. He just says, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. That's it. As far as we know, that's all God told Brother Mo. Question. Do you ever wish God would give you more information? God, I know I'm supposed to be in Elizabethtown, but I really don't know why. God, I know I'm supposed to go to this school right now, but I really don't know what I'm going to do when I get out. Lord, I really know I'm supposed to be at the job where I'm working right now, but uh, I don't really know why. I mean, it kind of pays the bills, but I don't really see a future in it. If you fill in the blank for you, you ever wish that God would give you more information for your life? 
You see, God is not nearly concerned about giving us information about all the little details of what to do next in your life as he is about you cultivating a personal relationship with him and walking by faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the confidence. Say confidence with me. Confidence of things hoped for. The assurance of things not seen. (coughs) 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We live by faith, not by sight. Our goal in life is not to simply know all the details of what to do next. Our goal is to know God above everything and above everything, everyone else. Here in Exodus chapter 14, Moses doesn't have a lot of information. But at least Moses knows more than the rest of Israel. Sometimes God will give a leader who has a genuine heart for him some information ahead of what he gives the rest of the people. Psalm 103.7 says, God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Jewish people were told what God wanted them to do, but Moses was told why God was doing it. And God told Moses in advance. Probably not as much as Moses would have liked to have known, but God did tell Moses something. And you don't have to be the leader of an army or a nation or even a church to hear from God. Psalm 25, 4 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. My primary goal for all of us who will be going through experiencing God is not simply to get all the blanks filled in your workbook and say, hey, I'm done. That's not the goal. The goal for us in experiencing God is not primarily so you're going to know what God wants our church to do. And so you can tell me and you can tell the staff, here's what we need to do now, Kevin. That's not the goal. The goal for us in experiencing God is that we might know God in a deeper, more powerful, intimate way than perhaps we've ever known Him before. Excuse me. As we continue growing as a church and reaching out to more and more and more people, I don't want us to be 100 miles wide and 3 inches deep. I want us to grow in our walk with our God. That we might know Him as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And yes, the fellowship of His suffering. Even being with Him in knowing about His death. I want to experience everything God has for my life. Because I want to know Him. Above everything else, in this life, we need to know God. But as you know God, a lot of times God will help you know more about how to live. How to take the next step. To paraphrase Charles Stanley, I don't write these revelations down in the back of my Bible and call them inspired. Sometimes I'm going to miss it. Sometimes you're going to miss it. But what's most important as we continue to seek God... Above everything and above everyone else. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all. Say it all with me. All of your heart. And lean not in your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him. And He shall direct thy paths. I don't know about you, but I can trust God as long as I can see that things are working. But when things don't look like they're working, it's a whole lot harder for me to trust God because my circumstances don't 
make sense to me. We have to trust God in all of our ways, even when life may not make sense to us. But God does want to help you know his will. In fact, he wrote a whole book about that to help us learn. And he also says in James 1.5, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask from God, who gives to all men generously and upbraideth not. He's not going to uh, criticize you or put you down for asking for wisdom. He wants you to seek him and his guidance in your life. Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the children of God. God's Spirit guides us. God will never lead you contrary to His Word. But if you trust in Him and follow His Word, He will guide you. And if you walk closely with God, He might give you some insight that you might not otherwise know. At other times, you may be like Abraham when God told Abraham, Abraham, it's time to move. Can you imagine being Abraham when he went home and told his wife, Sarah, Sarah, honey, we're moving. When are we moving? Now, where are we going? I don't know. God said he'd show us when we got there. How many of you guys think that would work really well for you and your family? Hey, we're moving, honey. Where are we going? I don't know. We'll know when we get there. But he had to walk by faith. God's will is often more like a, a flashlight than a floodlight. God is probably not going to give you all the details of what you need to do and where you're going to live and where you need to go and where you're going to work and who you're going to marry five years in advance. He often gives it to you day by day as you trust in Him, as you follow Him, as you walk with Him. Why does He do it that way? I think many times it's so we might live by faith, not simply by sight. Even when God does help us understand some things like Moses, it's often not enough to be able to fully understand or even begin to explain the details. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we see through a glass darkly. Sometimes that's all you get. We can see a little, but not like we'd like to see. Listen, following God is all about walking by faith, trusting in Him, obeying Him, doing what He's called you to do next. And sometimes, God's plans may not make a whole lot of sense to you. But to paraphrase Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when you can't trace God's hand, here's what you can't do. You can trust his heart. You see, you serve a God who loves you more than you have the capacity to love. You serve a God who loved you so much. He sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross for your sin. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrated his love for you. And that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ saw you there in your sin. And he died for you on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how much he loved you. Jesus Christ came to this earth and died a horrible, excruciatingly painful death on the cross because he wants to know you. And he wants you to live with him forever and ever and ever. 
He loves you more than you had the capacity to love. And he knows everything. And he can do anything. Why would you not want to follow a God like that? In verse 5, we move from God's conversation with Moses to the fulfillment of God's plan by Pharaoh. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. We had hundreds of thousands of slaves and now they're gone. We can't let this happen. We've got to go get them. Pharaoh doesn't know it, but he's playing right into God's hand. Verse 6. So he, that's Pharaoh, had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. Now, from a human perspective, that's great. Bring it on, Pharaoh, from our perspective, because we've read the story, right? We know what God's going to do. But if you're an Israelite, you don't have that perspective. All you can see is there's an army out there, and they're going to attack us, and we're going to die. Go to verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. From a human perspective, they had to be terrified. Scared out of their minds. We're all going to die. Things are not looking good for the home team. Now the Israelites deserve a whole lot of criticism for the way they acted in the desert. They were constantly whining, complaining, groaning, belly aching. But this is scary stuff. There's an enemy army charging fast, and they're totally helpless. There's no way they'll be able to defend themselves. They're all going to die. Or so it seems. To Israel's credit here in Exodus chapter 14, they at least did one thing right. Here in verse 10. They cried out to the Lord. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. When you find yourself in a predicament, and you don't know what to do, circumstances are closing in around you, you cry out to your God. In Jeremiah 33, 3, God told the prophet Jeremiah, call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all, say the word all of me again, all of your care upon him because he cares for you. But a lot of us, When it comes to casting our care upon God, we're kind of like a bass fisherman. Anybody ever been bass fishing? When you, what do you do? You throw it out, you reel it in. You throw it out, you reel it in. You throw it out, you reel it in. That's kind of what we do when we cast our care on God. Okay, God, I'm going to give you my issue. I'm going to give you my problem. I'm going to give you my struggle. Five minutes later, it's back again. You just keep taking it in. Cast it on God. And leave it with him. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Jesus said, call, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek, I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. And you should find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, it fits well, it's made just for you. And my burden is light. Jesus is calling us to cast our care upon him, to come to him, to depend upon him, to rely upon him. 
above everything and everyone else. The problem with Israel was they didn't truly trust God. So immediately after crying out to God, they began pouring out their angst against Moses. Verse 11. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in this desert. Here are the Israelites whining and complaining. If Moses would have been like me, he might have said, listen, I didn't sign up for this mission trip. I didn't want to come down here to Egypt again with, clueless. I was perfectly happy keeping sheep in the desert. You're the ones that cried out to God for deliverance. You're the ones that said, God, we need to get out of here. I didn't want to go down there and get you. Believe me. But thank God Moses didn't say that. I love his response here. Verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he accomplished for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you will see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you. What a powerful series of statements. Do not be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you. The Egyptians will be gone forever. How can Moses say that? From what we can determine, Moses does not yet have all the details, but he knows enough to give his people four powerful words of encouragement. First of all, do not be afraid. I believe God's got a word for some of you today. Do not be afraid. I know your circumstances might look scary. They might even look impossible. But you serve a God. Who's able to do more than you can ask or think or even imagine. He doesn't always change your circumstances. Sometimes he changes you. He's more concerned about developing in you the character of Jesus Christ. He is about making your life comfortable and convenient. But he does say, you don't need to be afraid. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Say power with me. Power. And love, say love me, love and a sound mind. Psalm 27, 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The 23rd Psalm says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because thou, my God, you are with me. Amen? In the Great Commission, Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you when circumstances are amazing. Is that what he said? He didn't say that, did he? Lo, I will be with you. Say it with me. Always, even to the end of the world, he won't leave you, he won't fail you, he won't forsake you. He says, I'll be there for you. Listen, when you go through the storms of life, you'll seldom have all the details. But you know enough, you know enough to know that the same God who delivered Moses and the people of Israel is the same God who's at work on your behalf in the middle of whatever you're going through. The next thing Moses told the people was to stand still. 
Sometimes the hardest thing in the world to do is to stand still. Let's do something, even if it's wrong. Question, what if the Israelites would have taken that approach? Hey, do you see those Egyptians over there in the hills? They got chariots, they got horses, they got soldiers. We're going to die. I'm running for my life. And some of them went this way and some of them went that way. Some of them went that way. They're scattered like a bunch of roaches in a college dorm room when you turn the lights on. What if they would have done that? They probably would have died, right? But Moses said, hey, stand still. Stand still. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God's about to do something greater than the Israelites could have imagined. I don't know about you, but I don't think any of the Israelites had a clue about what God was going to do next. I don't think they were talking among themselves saying, you know, I got a feeling God's going to open up this Red Sea and we're all going to walk across on dry land. Nobody was thinking that, okay? But God did. He opened up the Red Sea and two to three million Israelites walk across the Red Sea, not getting mud on their feet, but on dry land. Imagine a miracle. It's not open. It's probably dusty. Dry land. How many think that's a miracle? Amen. And so the Israelites get across on the other side. And they're just a celebrating. And the Egyptian army's right behind. They go, they did it. Now we're going to do it. And so they start riding their chariots and their horses and their soldiers. And they, they get in the middle of the Red Sea. What happens? God closes it up. And they all drown. Talk about a miracle. And Miriam's over there leading the music. I got the tambourines out. Women are a-dancing. I will sing unto the Lord, for he is tranquil. Horse and rider thrown into the sea. I remember singing that in a charismatic church one time. The ladies are all over the room with tambourines. It like, looked like something Moses would have done. Miriam would have done. <coughs> anyway, we're Baptists. We probably won't be doing that. <coughs> it was a miracle. Where was I? Here's something even better. Did you know God's promising you something even greater than what the Israelites got that day? You see, they're getting a temporary victory. But God has given you an eternal victory. When Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died on the cross for your sin, he said, It is finished. And when Jesus Christ finished his work on the cross, he finished it. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated the enemy. He said, it is finished. You have a victory through Jesus Christ, your Lord. God continued instruction to Moses. Don't be afraid. 
Moses continues to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. It gets even better. The Egyptians you see today, you will see no more again forever. God was going to take care of those bad boys from Egypt once and for all. I got more good news. Jesus Christ took care of your enemy on the cross forever and ever and ever and ever. And you have victory through Jesus' name. You have life, eternal life, abundant life. I didn't say easy life because sometimes it will not be easy. Sometimes circumstances will not go your way. Sometimes you won't get the job. Sometimes a check won't come in the mail. Sometimes you don't get a good report from your doctor. But you stay in there and you follow God in the middle of it. Because He's for you. He loves you. My, Moses gives the Israelites one more word of encouragement. Verse 14 when he says, The Lord will fight for you. I got good news. He's still fighting for you. Philippians 1.6 says, He who started a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength. He is never present help in time of trouble. Do you believe that? He's not just way off in the distance somewhere. He is present with you in the middle of your struggle, in the middle of your problem, in the middle of your issue, in the middle of your need. He says, I'll be with you. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Romans 8.37 says, you're more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Do you believe that? Then why don't we live like that? 2 Peter 1.3 says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given you power for living. Moment by moment and day by day as you trust in Him. That does not mean all your problems are going to go away. But He does say, I'll give you power to walk with me and to glorify my name in the middle of them. 1 John 4.4 says, greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Do you believe that? 2 Corinthians 20.15 says, the battle is not yours, but God's. Aren't you glad? Your battle is his battle. Your issue is his issue. Your problem is his problem. If you're trusting in Christ and you know him and you follow him and you're living by God's grace for him. Your battle is his battle. The battle is the Lord's. No matter how difficult your problem, no matter how great your need, know this. It's not bigger than your God. You serve the God. Who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, immeasurably more than all you can ask or think or even imagine. Do you believe that? Listen. If you're truly trusting in and following God, the issues you face. They're not just your issues. They belong to God. Everything we take to our God in prayer. Because... He loves you. He cares about you. He died for you. One day he's coming back for you. And he lives, he lives inside of you if you know Christ as Savior and Lord. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I plead with you, give your life to Jesus Christ today. Would you pray with me?